Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Like I said, we'll uh, be in 1 Kings chapter 6. Um, and before we do, I, uh, I, just, uh, I love a, a good plan, a good blueprint. I grew up in a 1920s uh, Californian bungalow in High Street, uh, Drysdale in Victoria in Australia. And uh, there came a day, though, that my parents had decided that it was time to be able to sell this house. They couldn't. Uh, it was a better option for us as a family, so they considered selling their house and then moving and, and building a new house to be able to move into. And during that time, there was long trips, uh, which I thoroughly enjoyed going with my parents to be able to look at display houses, looking at plans, looking at the options of the plans and, and all the different things, the variations that you saw. I loved looking down and seeing a plan and then being able to plan and, and see what uh, in my mind, what this could actually be. Uh, I, I have this ability to be able to do that, to be able to look at something on a piece of paper and envisage something, what it would be like at least. And uh, that's exactly what happened when we walked through the broken house. I told, uh, told Sarah, isn't it just beautiful? Isn't it just lovely? Think of all the possibilities of what this could be. And that's how my mind works. Hers does not work the same way. She, she's like, uh, we can't move into this. And uh, I've often wondered maybe if I was to go down a different career path, maybe a, an architect to be able to design and things. And then we turn to First Kings chapter 6 and, you know, there's, uh, I'm able to enjoy uh, reading it. Um, but then I read the introduction to Dale Ralph Davis and I think that helped me understand a little bit more about how others some might read a, a chapter like First uh, Kings chapter 6. And he, and he says, I suppose architects and building contractors get hooked on 1 Kings 6. It is full of dimensions and materials and fixtures and decorations, all the stock in trade of such folks. Many of us, however, feel more distance from this text. We are among those who are uh, closites, uh, klutzes, when it comes to the least bit of such activity. To break out in hives, should someone suggest we install a closed closet or remodel a bathroom? Our lack of skill determines our lack of interest in such affairs. So 1 Kings 6 may not exactly stir our uh, subliminal juices, but because God has chosen here to communicate His Word in the form of a construction report, we should pay careful heed to it. And uh, so what we're going to do is we're going to spend three weeks in 1 Kings chapter 6. And my plan and my hope is that we're able to look at 1 Kings chapter 6 from various angles, from using principles of how we interpret Scripture to be able to understand how we can read and study a passage like this in various lights, depending on what questions we ask and where we turn to in the Bible that helps us understand some of the principles that we see. But before we do, we need to understand the dangers of a passage like this. And I think it comes basically in two forms which have the same outcome from it. And the first is that I think what we do when we come to passages like this, where there's long lists or repetitive nature, uh, genealogies, long list of names, uh, list of dimensions, all we do is we just skip over it. And we just say, this is useless. This is not helpful to me. 
This is not good for me. It doesn't help me uh, in any sense. Why do I care about cubits? Knaves, what does that matter to me? And I think the second is to do the opposite. Instead of skipping over it, you spend so much time trying to unpack the passage to try and work out in all the details, trying to find some secret hidden code or mystery in the various references you see. What's the significance of the cubeness? of the Holy of Holies. Well, there must be a significance that it's 20 cubits by 20 cubits by 20 cubits. There must be. So why are there three levels? Well, we must interpret that in a Trinitarian sense. And, and what you try and do is then, what you in the details, you try and unpack that. And I hope over the next three weeks, what we try and do is to study this passage, to look at this passage in the context of Scripture, not overemphasizing the details, but also not just mainly skipping over it. Now, we could have done this study in, in one week, but I, I thought this would be a great passage to be able to understand how, how we can turn to a passage like this, this that would be difficult and in different ways from different perspectives look at how we can read through a passage like this. So the first week to th- this week, we're going to look at this a passage from a perspective of the progressive nature of Scripture. How does this passage in 1 Kings 6 fit into the whole timeline of Scripture? Next time we're together, and a part of me also breaking it up is a practical one. I'm here this week, not here the next, here one week, not here. So it gives us a chance to be able to revisit this in various light. But uh, what we see is then uh, the second week is we're going to look back and see where does this plan come from? Where do all these ideas come from? Where is it from Solomon's mind? And we'll see that again how it connects to uh, what the tabernacle is and, and how God has given that in his word. The last week is we'll be spending this looking from an, a new, new believer perspective, looking back at how a passage like this, specifically the temple, helps us understand the the details in this passage of of what we understand when we read about the temple in the New Testament. Now again, there's many overlaps in this. We're not going to be completely isolated when we look at this. Obviously, when we're going through the timeline of history, we're going to be looking at Exodus and the the story in Exodus of how this came about. But then uh, also that progression, we're going to see how all of it relates to a New Testament believer in all three weeks, but specifically from the New Testament backwards, we're going to understand that. But again, I, I hope to be able to show that we come to difficult passages like this. When you serve and read and study it using these principles and understand that we've been given all of Scripture, then we understand that there's blessings in, in spending time in such a passage. Um, but we can't ignore it, because um, what we would then be doing is, what we do is, if you skip over it, is you miss why God has included it in the passage. Or, if you study it atten- intensely, looking for every single detail and understanding some theological point in every single detail and aspect that we're given, then you also miss the point as well. Both of those things, you, you, you miss the reason why God has given us this passage and all of Scripture to be able to understand this. And again, it's easy to be able to say that we're 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17 Christians, 
All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. It's easy to say that 1 Kings chapter 6 is breathed out by God. However, the difficult part is, in what way is this God-breathed Scripture useful to us and profitable for us for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. How does this passage help us to be complete and equipped for every good work? Now that is a challenge. Again, it's easy to be able to say all of Scripture is breathed out by God. Again, how do then you apply that Scripture? And again, you go down those two different roads. We either skip over it, and thus not all Scripture is useful for correction and training, Or we spend too much time in it and look at all these details and what we miss is that point which we see. So again, we're going to spend some time in this. Hopefully we'll find that balance between not studying it enough and overstudying the passage. Like I said, this first week I really hope to be able to fit this passage within the context of the Bible. Now, we've been going through 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, so I think hopefully we understand the context where we are in this specific time in history uh, with David's reign and Solomon's reign, but specifically taking a step back help us to be able to do that. So what does that word mean, the progressive nature of Revelation? And simply it means that God has revealed himself through Scripture And he did not reveal himself through scripture in one specific time or even just through one specific person or one specific culture in one specific aspect in one corner of the globe. What you see is that God has revealed himself through scripture through a period of time, through various men recording their scriptures. And what you see is that We're not told everything at one time, that we need Scripture to help us understand Scripture. Now, this is very important that we we understand when we come to 1 Kings chapter 6, we don't get caught up in the details of 1 Kings chapter 6 and worrying about what cubits, how long cubits are, what they are, how many cubits are there in the length and the width of the temple, the height of the temple. Again, what's the significance of the cubeness of the... uh, that isolates God's progressive nature of Scripture, His revelation. That says this is the only thing that God has revealed to us that we need to know. So I think that helps us understand that. And we even see that in this passage. That again, this passage places us not just within the context of Solomon's reign, but also in the nation's history in Israel. And that's what you see in verse 1. In the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Viv, uh, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. So we see that even the author wants to remind us that this is happening not just in Solomon's reign, but specifically in the timeline of the nation of Israel. 480 years after the people came out of Israel... And he places that within a big mountain. And what we see then is that introductory piece that this is a huge, significant time in the nation of Israel. Now that number, 480, there's two main lines of thought when it comes to what does that actually mean, 480 years. And the importance of that is it dates then when Exodus happens. 
This, this year that we talk about when the temple was built is generally pretty concise to around um, uh, 966 B.C., roughly. Around that pinpoint time, David reigned from about a, a 110, uh, 1010 to 970 B.C., Solomon begins his reign in 970, four years into it, 966. Roughly, that, that number is pretty consistent across uh, scholarly uh, discussion. But the, the importance of this is 480 years before that. And that comes down to how you date Exodus. We discussed this briefly in, in our Sunday morning service, but there's two main lines of thoughts. The first is that it, it specifically is not necessarily the number of years, it's the number of generations. You notice that throughout, uh, you know, throughout Bible conversations or throughout the Bible, it's referenced in generations. For genera- you'll even read the beginning of um, Matthew. He breaks down the genealogy of Jesus into, gene- into generations. And, and so the first line of thought is that if this is not 480 years specifically, it's 12 generations. Twelve generations of about 40 years each. And that would be about, um, if it's not 40 years, but more like 25 years, which is probably more realistic, uh, those, 40 genera- those 12 generations would date the Exodus around 13th century B- uh, B.C. So 1225 or thereabouts. Now that lines up with the names of archaeological digs around that time in that period of Ramesses and, and Pithom. Um, or the second option is it's literally 480 years. And that would mean that the Exodus is earlier or later, uh, further away from uh, 0 BC or 1 BC. And that would be 1446 BC. Um, now I tend to think that it's 480 years literal. I, there's reasons for that. I think there's an overlap between at that time and, and Joseph and dating and things like this. Um, but again, if we get hung up on that specific date, then what we're doing is we're missing the point that here the author is placing this event of building the temple within a very significant event. 480 years ago, we left Egypt. Now the house of the Lord has been built. This is another mountain that we have mountain that we have reached. It's a huge moment. This is how it was dated in, in Exodus 12. Again, that people lived in Israel, uh, Egypt, for 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. Again, it was a pinnacle point and a reference in that point. We were slaves at this point, and now we are free. Exodus chapter 12. And now we jump 480 years later, and we have this huge, important milestone in the nation of Israel. Why is this such a big deal? Well, because it was a big deal because God was not merely bringing his people out merely just to be free from slaves from Egypt. He brought them out to be able to be true worshipers of God, and specifically to worship God in his specific manner, in his specific place. In Deuteronomy 12, it clearly points out, You shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out all of your tribes to put his name and mark his habitation there. There you shall go, later in verses 8 to 11. You shall not do according to all that you have done here today. 
everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes. For you have not as yet come to rest in the inheritance that Lord your God is giving you. But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes, your contributions that you present, and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. So here we see that it's very clear that God brings them out, that they're free, but they're not free from their enemies. They've still got enemies that come in and oppress them. That's what happens during the conquest. That's what happens during the time of Judges. That's what happens during the time of Saul and the time of David. All of these times they've got enemies. They're free, but they're still not living in peace, in harmony. And that was a part of the promise, that God would give them a land as an inheritance, but also that they would have peace, that they might be able to worship God appropriately. That they would be able to come to this place the Lord God chooses to make their offerings, to worship God. And throughout Deuteronomy, this, this place that God chooses is very clear. That God wants to dwell in the midst of his people. It's not just some temporary deal that God wants to do. He wants to show the permanence of how he wants to dwell with his people forever. It's not merely just being free. It's not merely just entering into the promised land. It's entering into a promised land that God protects them from their enemies. That's exactly what we saw in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Another mountain. The Lord says, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. The violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time I have appointed judges over my people Israel and I give you rest from all your enemies, moreover the Lord declares to you, the Lord will make you a house. Again, it's not merely just living in a land. God wants to be able to live them, have them in a land where they would have peace. On every side. Rest from the enemies. Not only just saved from slavery. But saved to be able to find rest in God. Who dwells with them. So we understand that this then is, is a huge significant event. In the nation of Israel. This huge historical marker. But also notice something here that we need to grasp our minds around is that, that here it's called specifically the Lord's house, God's house. That God is going to dwell in the midst of his people, in the midst of the house. And I think here you see a very important aspect of uh, our theology of God. When we think about God, how God has revealed himself in, the, in the, the word, we see that he's infinite, he's eternal. That means he's not able to be found specifically in a time or a place like we are. He doesn't have a body like a man. That he made creation. Therefore, he is greater than all of creation. We'll see this as, as Solomon dedicates the house and later chapters, but in the Chronicler puts it in Second Chronicles chapter 2. 
The house that I am to build will be great, for our God is greater than all gods. But who is able to build him a house, since heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain him? Who am I to build a house for him, except as a place to make offerings before him? So here, the principle is God is eternal, infinite, great. God, the heavens can't even contain God. Then, then why would God come and dwell in a house? This is exactly what we see in Acts chapter 17. And the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is served by human hands, as though he is in need of anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So here again we see that principle that God is greater than all things. He does not need a temple. He, 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 he doesn't need a temple made by man. He doesn't need anything. We need him. He's the one that gives life and breath. But what you see here is an important principle of God relating to his people. Voluntarily condescending down to us, as the Westminster Divines put it. That here God comes to be able to dwell with his people. He comes to be able to live in a house. Now that does not negate the first. God does not change. But what he does is he relates to us. Now the second part of, and where we'll be spending the rest of our time, is really how we see this throughout all of history. So I'm going to read the passage from verses 2 to 10, and then we'll look at how it fits within uh, the timeline of Scripture. What we see here in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 2 to 10. The house that King Solomon built for the Lord was 60 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. The vestibule in front of the nave of the house was 20 cubits long, equal to the width of the house, and 10 cubits deep in the front of the house. And he made the house windows with recessed frames. He also built a structure against the house, the wall of the house, running around the walls of the house, both the nave and the inner sanctuary. And he made six uh, side, and he made side chambers all around. The lowest story was five cubits broad. The middle was, one was six cubits broad. The third was seven cubits broad. From around the outside of the house, he made offsets of the wall in order that the supporting beams should not be inserted into the walls of the house. When the house was built, it was built with stone prepared at the quarry, so that neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron was heard in the house while it was being built. The entrance for the lowest story was on the south side of the house, and one went up by stairs to the middle story and from the middle story to the third. So he built the house and finished it, and he made the ceiling of the house of beams and planks of cedar. He built the structure against the whole house, five cubits high, and it was joined to the house with timbers of cedar. So what, simply what we see is just the outline of the exterior aspects of the temple. If you were to look at the temple from the outside, what would you see? And this is exactly what you would see. The, the, the main center core with a, a porch or a nave on the front with a building that goes around the side uh, with stepped levels so that the lowest level is the lowest, five cubits wide. The next level rests on a, a stepped stone, so it goes to six cubits wide. The third level rests on the next step. 
Now we'll see a video in coming coming weeks of what this looked like. You can even just look it up online. There's many different videos of, of what it looks like. But I want to look at some other passages to help us understand how this passage might fit within the Bible and how they relate and connect to other passages. And that helps us unpack what we see in this passage to help us understand that message that we see again. How can we turn to a passage like this and help the whole Bible understand a passage like this? The first we're going to turn to is Genesis chapter 6. Now it might seem a strange passage to be able to turn to. But specifically, you have instructions from God to Noah to be able to build an ark. Again, we see similar models, similar things, similar principles. And again, even just reading through it. God tells Noah in verse 13, I've determined to make an end to all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with earth, with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. The breadth, 50 cubits. The height, 30 cubits. Make a roof of the ark and finish a cubit above. Set the door in the ark in a side. Make it a lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood on the waters upon the earth to destroy the flesh, in which the breath of life under heaven, breath of life under heaven, everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark. You, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Now, I'm not trying to then make a one-to-one correlation that here we see the ark and here we see measurements. How do these measurements fit inside the, the, the measurements in, in 1 Kings chapter 6? I'm not even trying to make a connection between why there are three levels on the outside and three levels in the deck. But what I think is if you look at this broadly, what you see is you can see similar pattern. That is, God tells to be able to build something. They build it out of wood. They cover it with a certain uh, substance. Here in the temple, they'll cover everything with gold. After covering things with gold, then someone goes in to be able to dwell there, and we see something here. And what we see here is the home for man to be able to save mankind is merely just an ark, wood, covered in pitch. The house in which God is to dwell is a house of great splendor and uh, might. You see the various levels. Man is is sinful and thus merely just needs a wood to be able to protect him from God's judgment. But what you see is is God's judgment in the the ark is, is, where is God in all of this? God is in the heavens. God is not dwelling in the ark with Noah. God's judgment and wrath is on the outside, and this is what protects them from that, from God. But what you see is the reverse in the temple. Here God comes in to be able to dwell with them, and the temple is there to be able to protect those outside. His holiness. That here the man and creation go inside the ark, and that home fit for God's creation, but it's not fit for God. So what you see is that important principle there, uh, that, that the home for us is much lower than the home for God because God is perfect in all of his being. The second that we turn to is the tabernacle. David merely just calls it a tent. And in Exodus twenty-five, twenty-six, 
we again see very specific instructions given from God to man of how to be able to create a place for him. We see the, the, head, the height, the breadth, the width. You see that we, they're to cover these wood in certain elements. If it's touching the ground, then it's covered in silver. If it's where God is to dwell, it's covered in gold. But I think the important thing there is you see that now the, the thing that is built is built for God to be able to come and dwell with the people. And it's built with specific, very specific instructions, and those specific instructions really come down to the portability of what it is. And that, import, that shows us the important principle. The first shows us the important principle that, that God cannot dwell with a sinful man. The sinful man needs to be protected from God. And the second is the principle that God seeks to be able to dwell with their people where the people are at. God does not tell them to set up a temple because they don't have a home yet. They've got to move into their home. They've got to move, and God wants to be with them wherever they are. God wants to lead them, to guide them. And again, you, you see the length. The first is merely just an, is a piece of wood covered in pitch. But the second is one covered with various things, gold, finest linens, whatever is touching the ground is silver, whatever is outside is bronze. But here God comes to be able to dwell with his people. And then what you see then is, is in 1 Kings chapter 6, is that now we see the important principle that God comes to dwell his, for his people, not merely just temporarily, not merely just moving. There's a permanence to how God wants to be able to dwell with him, them. That here you see the size increase, the splendor increase. And then you go forward and you see Ezekiel chapter 42 and 43. What you see then is the temple gets even larger, even grander. It expands. But all of this is leading to Revelation chapter 21. When again we see another dimensions of God giving instructions. Verse 15 it says, And the one who spoke to me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and the gates and the walls. The city lies four square, its length of the same as the width. And he measured the city with his rod. Twelve thousand stadia, the length of the width and the height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. And the wall was built of jasper, and the city was pure gold and like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth uh, carlion, the seventh uh, chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth uh, chrysophyus, the eleventh jacketh, jacketh, the twelfth amerth, and the twelve gates of the twelve pearls, which the gates were made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. 
So again, we see here, what, what changes in all of this? Here the first is, God is not in the ark with man. God is outside his wrath and punishment. The ark saves man from God. The second is, God comes to dwell in the midst of his people. To move with them as they move, as they're not there yet in their home. And he, he seeks to be able to move with them. But again, he dwells in his holy of holies. But his people cannot dwell in the holy of holies. Same too as the temple expands underneath Solomon. He comes to be able to make his home and dwell permanently with his people. But again, his people cannot go and dwell with him. God is in their midst, but there's a separation. The priest goes in once a year to be able to make a sacrifice in the Holy of Holies. It's not that the priest then lives in the temple. Even you see that separation in the temple between the outer rooms, that there's no post that goes inside the holy sanctuary. All the things that are common outside are separated from what is holy and pure on the inside. As Ezekiel envisions this temple, as Revelation picks up on the the squareness of this temple and seeing this, that here what it is, there's no temple because God's people are holy. And God is holy. There is no separation between God and man because God has redeemed and sanctified and purified his people. So what we see is we turn to 1 Kings chapter 6. We need to understand the important part. This is a piece of the puzzle, but it's not the whole puzzle. We need to understand this glorious truth that God comes to dwell with his people, but there's a separation between God and his people because of their sin. But that's not the plan. Not The plan is not merely that they dwell close to each other. But God dwells with his people and his people dwell with God. And God is going to make a way to be able to dwell with his people. We see this man-made thing and if we get caught up on the man-made thing, we don't understand why God told the man to make the thing. That is merely a shadow of what is to come, that glorious truth. And this glorious truth of the gospel is that we cannot go to God. So what does God do? God comes to us. God makes a way for us. This is what the author of Hebrews picks up time and time again. But he says in chapter 8, now the point in where we are saying it, the point that we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man, for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus as it is necessary for priests also to offer have something to offer. Now if he were on earth he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to law. And they serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better. 
since it is enacted on better promises. For the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. That here, if we get caught up on the, the squareness of the, 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 the holy of holies, then what we miss is we, we merely just get caught up on cubits. And not understand that this is a shadow of the reality of where God is moving to, what God is doing. That God comes down as the great high priest to be able to dwell amongst his people, to tabernacle amongst his people. Do we look not to the true, ta- te- the true the, the, the temple that is in 1 Kings 6, we look to the true temple. The temple that is not made with hands. Because a temple made with hands is destroyed by hands. That's exactly what we'll see. And if our promise rests on a physical temple, then we have no hope. We don't have a physical temple. Then the number one thing that we should be doing is seeking to build a physical temple. But the promise is not about the stones that rot and decay. But this is merely just made according to a pattern. It happens in God's way. The man does not then make a way to, to meet with God. God makes a way for us to go to him. He shows us that way of how we are to approach him. Do we see the barrier of our sin... We see him coming to meet us, but then still that barrier that we need a mediator who will go before us. Who will approach the holy God with sin offerings and and sacrifices that we might uh, be able to be seen pure and holy. And we see that with Christ coming. Christ says, you tear this temple down, I will rebuild it in three days. They're thinking of the the thing, the, 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 the shadow. But he's saying, it's not the shadow you're focusing on. I am the substance of the shadow. I'm the one that cannot be destroyed, for I am eternal. I was not made by hands. I've always been eternally begotten. I cannot be destroyed by hands. And as we look over the next couple of weeks, hopefully we'll see more and more how the significance of how this fits into the ongoing timeline of how God has revealed himself. That ultimately what we need to see is here God comes to dwell with his people to make a way for his people. And he does that through Christ. That, in the end, there is no need for a temple that we are holy enough to be able to dwell with Him, and that's what we find in Christ. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Glade Spring, Virginia. Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m for his glory and his gospel.